Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. Um, to our second plenary, um, we are aware that it was a long day. It is very warm, but we are in a magnificent environment. And I'm very much looking forward to the discussions of the next two hours. My name is Heidi Maurer. I'm at the University of Oxford. And I'm the coordinator of NORDIA, the, the Chamonix Network on Research and Teaching in EU Foreign Affairs. I want to start by, of course, thanking the organizers. Um, we were just saying it's a magnificent environment. We are all happy to be in Lisbon. But I also want to use this opportunity to thank UASIS, who is one of the members of NORTIA, for the continuous work in helping us disseminate, publish, and reach out with, with the activities that, that we are doing. I also want to take this opportunity to thank Richard Whitman, who unfortunately couldn't be here, but who in the end had the idea for this roundtable and was very much the mastermind behind setting up this roundtable. Our Chamonix network has four aims. On the one hand, of course, we are supposed to talk and exchange about our research, to have opportunity to meet different people to talk about our research. But I think what we are really happy about is that the activity of providing support for early career scholars and to create networks of early career scholars really took off. And also this idea that we do activities that reach our students so that we also have this teaching element. However, the fourth aim of our network is to also really think a bit more of how we can engage with practitioners, of how we can bring to practice the expertise of policy makers and the insights that academia can offer a bit more together and I'm very happy that in spirit of this aim, we could organize this roundtable tonight. And I want to especially thank our true policymakers who agreed to join us, because I know that, of course, you're busy. Probably the academic world sometimes seems a bit strange from the outside. Uh, but we really appreciate that you took the time and made the effort to keep engaging with us. The whole rationale to organize this roundtable was, I think, also part of a frustration that many of foreign policy scholars and external relations scholars felt in the last years because we were always told, oh, we can't look yet at the Lisbon Treaty innovations because it's too early. Just wait a bit. We don't know yet what is happening. And I think also with the roundtable this morning, we now have the spirit of, oh, 10 years, maybe it's good enough to actually say, okay, let's take stock, let's you know, put the break for a moment, and let's actually reflect on what is happening. So just to remind ourselves, with the Lisbon Treaty, of course, we got the European Action Action Service. We got this readjusted role of the high representatives. And we got this diplomatic network that is now support, supporting the Action Action Service. And I'm very happy that, in light of these innovations, we have four experts that agreed to join us in reflecting on these past 10 years, but also in looking forward the next 10, 50 years. So let me briefly introduce our speakers to you. First of all, I'm very delighted that Secretary of State of European Affairs, Anna Zakarias, agreed to join us. We are really pleased that you, you have the opportunity to come to us, talk to us, and also bring the Portuguese perspective to, to our conference. Um, but I'm also very much looking forward because I noticed that, of course, you bring much, you unite much more perspectives in one person. So the State Secretary actually started her career as an academic. Uh, but then afterwards, uh, worked in different roles in the, in the diplomatic service of Portugal, also as deputy permanent representative in Brussels, before switching sides and becoming EU ambassador to Brazil. And of course, now you are back as Secretary of State, and we are looking very much forward also to get from you a sense of how the member states perceive the Lisbon Treaty innovations and what they think works and doesn't. I also want to extend a very warm welcome to our second speaker, David O'Sullivan, who just retired as EU ambassador to the United States. So he was US, uh, EU ambassador to the United States from 2014 to 2019. Um, and I could assume many of us have a lot of questions about Trump and what's going on on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, but I think many of, you, many of us also remember you as being one of the people that's very much bringing this institutional expertise to what's happening in EU foreign policy. So just to remind ourselves, David O'Sullivan was one of the masterminds as Chief Operating Officer in the Exxon and Action Service, who very much worked on the ground to set this new service up. Before that, he was Director General in DG Trade. So 
nowadays the other side <laughs> of European foreign policy making. He was uh, Director General of the European Commission and he also was uh, Head of Staff, Chief of Staff of, uh, of Barroso in, in setting up the Barroso Commission. So I'm very much looking forward to also have these different perspectives coming together and the one in the member states, the different experiences from your roles as ambassadors, but then of course also the different institutional perspectives. Because we don't only want, of course, to listen and reflect on what practitioners have to say, but also want to engage with what we hear, I'm very delighted that two of my Norte colleagues accepted to join us on this round table. So just next to me is Ben Donner from the University College of Dublin. And I'm also thankful that Ben is here with us today because he was one of the masterminds behind the first network that we had in Cairo. And I think many of us um, in the whole him a big thanks for bringing this group of scholars together and keeping us going through the years in reflecting on UFOM policy. Many of us might know, of course, Ben, for his research on Europeanization of security and defense policy, this more social constructivist perspective on how this interaction of EU foreign policy works. And Ben, at the moment, um, also is strongly involved in the Horizon 2020 project, Globus, where they look at the role of the EU in external relations in the light of global justice. So I'm really looking forward also to get a bit more of these perspectives from you and your project. Last but not least, on the other end of the table, we have just Henrik Morgenstern-Pomorski, uh, who just uh, joined the University of Birmingham. And I'm very happy that Jost agreed to join us because in our discussions he very often brings the public administration perspective to our foreign uh, affairs reflections. Um, and Jost just published a book on the European External Action Service. So if you go to the Routledge stand, look for the contested diplomacy of the European External Action Service, inception, establishment, and consolidation. So I'm very thankful that you agreed to join us. In terms of setup, we agreed that we try to keep the round table a bit of interactive and we will have three different rounds of questions that we will reflect upon. Uh, and I asked the first question that I asked our speakers to, to think about is really to take a more narrow look. Look back the last 10 years and think about did we actually, I mean did the European Union actually accomplish what it set out to do? So did the United member states actually manage to set out what they had wanted in foreign affairs, this idea of having a more coherent and more effective actor? But then also to take a second perspective and ask ourselves, well, were these aims the right ones? So just to really reflect on the first 10 years of the European Excellent Action Service and this role of the High Representative. And without further ado, I'm very much looking forward to hear what Anna Zagarias um, has to say. Thank you, Ivy. Thank you for this invitation. Thank you for inviting me to be here at the annual OASIS conference and a warm welcome to Lisbon to you all. It's a pleasure also to have you here. Um, such a distinguished group of academics and, uh, and also of practitioners of uh, foreign policy. Uh, it's a particular pleasure to have here um, uh, with me or by my side David O'Sullivan, whom I know for many years uh, in the European Union. And uh, it's really important to have this debate at the moment when the institutional setting um, of the uh, European Union is in a transition uh, moment. So I'm really glad not only to um, talk, but especially to listen to you, to interact and to understand what is your view in terms of uh, where are we heading uh, to uh, in terms of foreign policy and security and defense. And uh, as you were saying, I did, uh, 10 years ago I was working as a Portuguese ambassador taking care of Corepair 1 in Brussels and the AAS had just been created and I decided to apply to the post of EU ambassador to Brazil. My colleagues thought that I was crazy. They were saying, what if they don't take you? It be a shame. And then the people will say that you are a career diplomat from, you know, with a, already a big career in Portugal. What if they don't take you? They think that you are not fit for the job. So, okay, well, and what if you don't adapt? And what if it doesn't work? And it worked. It worked. 
and it worked as a very rewarding experience. I was EU ambassador for four years in Brazil, and I liked it so much that I repeated the dose. I, I went on to become EU ambassador for Colombia and, and Ecuador. And when I was there, you know, working my daily life as EU ambassador, my government picked the phone and said, you have to come back home. And that's why I'm here today <laughs> as Secretary of State for European Affairs. Oh, and yes, yes, it was also here in Lisbon, 2007, that we had and that we signed off this famous treaty, the Treaty of Lisbon. So anyway, everything seems to be uh, connected. You asked, I did that, did we did the right thing? Did we accomplish the mission? Uh, the EU, the EU and the member states. I would say up front that yes. In my opinion, yes. Like any human endeavor, we can always do better. We can always um, do things in a different way. But we came a long way since 20 years ago in Cologne uh, we decided to create the common European policy on, on security and defense. Um, even the more critics, the more pessimistic, have to convene that much progress was achieved, in particular over these last 10 years. Uh, above all, the Union was able to adapt, to adapt to different times, changing situations. The Union is indeed this famous construction, brick by brick, with the necessary flexibility. Some say that we have a geopolitical and geoeconomic scenario uh, marked by, uh, that was marked by economic and financial crisis. We had an unprecedented technological advances. Uh, we had a more competitive world. We have a raise in populism and nationalism, less favorable to multilateralism, and yet we have been finding the solutions or some answers for this. It's not all the answers, but some of the answers are there. Uh, the Article 21 in the treaty um, establishes the external action of the EU, and the idea is that we could become more relevant, a, be a better and more relevant player in a multipolar world. Basic idea was together we are stronger, together we are better. And, um, and are we better? Did we, did we do it in a good way? I think that we are better in terms of coordination. Of course, it's not just the law. It's not, not just implementation. It also has to do with the people that are there. And we have two extraordinary women, Lady Ashton and Federica Mogherini, as the first two high representatives in the post-Lisbon Treaty. Uh, and I think they did their best to do this adaptation. And they did a big achievement from my point of view, which was the AIS. The AIS was created in 10 years. Many of our diplomatic services took centuries to become what they are. Of course, there was a structure already in many of the places. But what was achieved in the end is a structure um, of 143 delegations that worked together, that worked with the member states, that worked internally under the head of the delegation, which is a very political role. So I think we are much better off uh, in this matter. And these delegations are the image of the EU in the world, in these places where we are, on the ground, the delegation is the image of the EU and puts together all the services of the Commission, puts together and works together with the member states to coordinate this action. So there is a better coordination with the services of the Commission. We have a toolbox that has been developed along the way that includes all these different elements of trade policy, humanitarian, development aid, migration, and now also climate change, energy, and technology uh, developments. So we are better in terms of that coordination. We are also better in coordinating with European Parliament and with the national parliaments. So we have more committees, more debates, more circulation of information, more parliamentary uh, diplomacy. We are better in the coordination with member states, not only at the level of, uh, of the, the, the third countries where we have the delegations that interact in a very coordinated way with the member states' embassies, but also 
with the by the role of the high representative, the third hat, as we can say. First hat, she is high representative. Second hat, she is vice president of the commission. And this helped, of course, in the coordination of the commission. And the third hat is that she is the chair of the uh, Foreign Affairs Council. And as chair of Foreign Affairs Council, she has a huge opportunity and also a huge responsibility in interacting uh, better with member states. We also have, from my point of view, a better uh, coordination with citizens and the civil society. I think that there is a greater connection now with citizens, a more strategic and user-friendly communication, more interaction with universities, with NGOs, building a more democratic uh, EU external action uh, when it comes to transparency, inclusiveness and scrutiny. We had a very interesting panel in the Institute of Florence uh, a couple of months ago where this was the theme, how can we make the European Union foreign policy more democratic, more available, more understandable to people. And I think we are doing what we can, including in the realm of trade. Mogherini, from my point of view, was also successful in formulating a more strategic approach to the EU foreign policy. We all know the global strategy, Together with member states, she pushed for the European defense and strategic autonomy. At the beginning, nobody believed this was possible. And yet, here we are. We are with PASCO, Unified Command Common Training, Civilian Compact, the ability to deploy a major military operation in short time. More cooperative action with the UN, with NATO, 34 missions and operations developed under EU flag new financial instruments, more competitive European defense industry, without forgetting that this is, as it says, an industry. And it should bring wealth and it should bring jobs also for the countries where this industry is, uh, is, is, has, is established. Together, despite all odds, we continue to push for multilateralism as the most advanced and successful multilateral experience, the multilateralism is in our DNA. And so we pushed for it. We worked better with the UN, with the UN system, and this is reflected in the Paris Agreement, the SDGs. Uh, we rescued some UN agencies like UNRWA, uh, protected, we protected the Iran nuclear deal, we worked in Syria, we worked with the WTO, with IMO, with the African Union. Then there was a third element, which is the issue of strategic partnerships. I remember on the first strategic, uh, um, on the first strategic uh, agenda, we had 10 strategic partnerships. Nobody knew exactly why were 10 or 15 or, or 9. Uh, there was a big discussion about that. I think now things are clear. We, we have a partnership with shared interest, with mutual respect, with transparency, but there is one partnership above all that we need to develop further, which is the partnership with Africa. Then, crisis prevention, technical, uh, tackling the root causes of conflict. Yes, I was there in Colombia. We did a good job. Things are not turning so well now, but unfortunately, things are not, taking, are not going so well in many other dossiers. The world is probably not going the direction we would like it to go. Is this our fault? Maybe there is a little bit. It's always, there is something always from our side. But I think it's not true to say that it's all our fault. And if we didn't act, it would be much worse, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think we did a good job in the peace process in Colombia. We worked in Ukraine. We worked in Afghanistan. And um, we somehow are clear now who are our partners and who are our competitors. And this will take us forward. We need to be more assertive with China, to rewrite the relation with the US. Um, and I think above all, and I want to finish with this, we need to balance, and we did, we did that. We balanced this notion of patience, finding consensus, working together, listening to all, with the other trend 
which now some people call the Macron trend, which is <laughs> audacious. Speed, let's go, innovation, we have to think better than fast. The EU has to have this balance, and I think we managed, we managed so far. So a lot of people say, yes, we need the innovation. We did different things. We're not always together. We need what? Majority, qualified majority. That's the solution. It's going to solve everything. Mm -mm. From my point of view, it will not sort things out. We have it with migration. What happened? The ones that didn't accept the majority say, no, no, I'm not taken by that. I'm not going to do it. it it's something that is yours, not mine. So if we want engagement, if we want every people, every single member state together, we need to do our best to continue to be together. We need to listen to everybody. We need to bring in people. It's, is it easy? No, it's not. But united in diversity we stand. And this is for us, from the Portuguese point of view, uh, very, very uh, important. And it's deepening these traditional alliances and connections that each member state has and will continue to have. They, we, we have special relations with a, with a set of countries, and it's important we, that we bring that to the Union. And it's important that the Union understands that we have special interests, that we have special connections. And, and I think, as the Union itself, diversity is richness. We need to find out ways how to deal with this uh, richness. So we, um, we've made it, not up until the day, there's still a lot to be done. But this <laughs> is for the second part of our discussion, I think, uh, and uh, many, many, uh, many ideas could be then discussed of what can we do better in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much for outlining to us the amount of activity, but also this, this idea that maybe we should be a bit more patient in listening to different voices. I would not like to hand over to David O'Sullivan, because I'm very curious, of course, from having the perspective from inside. Better like this? No. Hello? No. No. Yeah. Hello? No. Not better? Ooh, sorry. <laughs> Do you hear me now? No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I'm not very much looking forward. Uh, to, to what David O'Sullivan has experienced from an inside perspective, because I can imagine diversity activity sounds very nice, but if you have to deal with it on an everyday basis, maybe it, the assessment would be a bit different. We are very much looking forward to your assessment of the first 10 years. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi. Is this mic working? Yes, okay. Thank you, uh, and uh, thank you very much, USAs, for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here in Lisbon also. Um, I've attended a number of the panels uh, this morning and after lunch. I had no idea so many of you were working on the, the theory of what we were doing as practitioners. Uh, I slightly disagree with Carolina this morning when she said, uh, you know, the AS is a great idea in theory, but does it work in practice? Rather like an Irish Prime Minister, Gary Fitzgerald, I tend to think it actually works rather well in practice, I'm just not so sure it works so well in theory. And, and I can see that that's what's bedeviling some of you, you can't quite find the theory that makes it work. Um, in fact, the, the creation of the External Action Service and, and what we have achieved over the last 10 years, and I agree entirely with, with uh, everything that Anna has said, it's a minor miracle, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I began my career with uh, European Political Cooperation in the early 70s, when we couldn't meet in Brussels because member states wanted to make a clear distinction between political cooperation and community matters, as they called it. So we had to meet in the country of the presidency. Uh, and the commission was not automatically invited to the meetings. Uh, we would be invited, we'd be left outside the door, and when they wanted us to come in, we'd be allowed to come in. We wouldn't know what they discussed before, we wouldn't know what they discussed after. We'd be asked to make our intervention, then we'd be told, now please leave, and we, the member states, will discuss the matter further. Uh, that was in the 1970s. 
we now have a situation, when I was in Tokyo in the early 80s as a junior diplomat in the European Union, European Commission delegation, uh, I can assure you that member states reminded us every day that they were in charge. The rotating presidency uh, did the demarches, they chaired the meetings, uh, the member states were absolutely determined that our head of delegation would not be called an ambassador because that would be an affront to their status. Uh, and we were very much uh, left as second-rate citizens in the diplomatic world. Uh, that has changed totally. I mean, you cannot imagine the Copernican revolution that the Treaty of Lisbon meant, whereby the, the, it was the EU ambassador, ambassador uh, who chairs the meetings of the member states. It's the EU ambassador who makes the demarches and who speaks on behalf of, of the EU on, on European matters. Uh, I can assure you that had the uh, member state ambassadors in Tokyo in the early 80s understood that that was going to be the case, they would have choked on their sushi. <laughs> and many of them probably are in the great diplomatic world in the sky where they probably now preside, reside. Uh, this was a dramatic change. I can assure you when I was in Washington and I had fantastic relations with our member states because, as Anna will tell you, one of the first rules of any EU ambassador is to secure your base, which is your member states. And I always used to say to uh, our diplomats going out to delegations, the difference between you and a national and a bilateral ambassador is the bilateral ambassador can be 100% focused on the host country. You need to be at least 30% focused, if not 40% focused, on your member states. Because without them, without their agreement, without their cooperation, you are of no value uh, uh, to, to, to the host country or indeed you have no credibility. When I went with uh, my British, French and German colleagues to attend a meeting of the Democratic Caucus in, in 2015 to defend the Iran deal, which they were seriously considering voting down, and Nancy Pelosi uh, turned and said, now we've got the four ambassadors, I'm sure the German ambassador will want to start, and the German colleague said, no, Mrs. Pelosi, uh, uh, we're here on behalf of the European Union, it's our, it's our European Union ambassador colleague who will speak on behalf of all of us. I can assure you that was a moment which, back in the 1970s or the 1980s, I would never have dreamt was possible. Now, of course, this is about process, yes, I grant you, and you have to have the content to deliver on it, but the mere fact that we have achieved this degree of, of integration and this degree of common understanding is in itself a, a mini-revolution. And the creation of the Common External, uh, of the External Action Service was and has been quite a dramatic step. Uh, Carolina also said, you know, that uh, Chris, Chris Patton and, and Javier Solana both disagreed. It's true, because they were being done out of a job. Uh, and neither of them liked the idea that implicitly the suggestion was neither of them was able to fulfill uh, the full purpose uh, of, of representing the EU. They both did fantastic jobs, by the way. Javier Solana did a remarkable job as the first high representative created by the Amsterdam Treaty, and Chris Patton was a, an amazing external relations commissioner. But the fact is, we were at risk of creating two parallel bureaucracies. Under Solana, we had uh, the growth of a bureaucracy dealing with foreign policy in the European Council. The military staff from the Western European Union, when it was folded up, moved to the European Council uh, Secretariat. We had people in the European Council Secretariat managing the, the, the civilian and military missions, and we had people working on the foreign policy conclusions of the European Council. This was unsustainable because we had competing bureaucracies on, on both sides of the road with the Commission and the other aspects of, of external relations. Bringing these two things together was absolutely indispensable. And I think we have done this in a remarkable way, uh, integrating the staff from the Commission, uh, the staff from the Council Secretariat, and uh, one-third of the staff from Member States. And I can assure you, when we took over to set up the External Action Service uh, in, in, in 2011, nobody thought we could achieve this. And yet, within two or three years, under the leadership then of Kathy Ashton and subsequently of Federica Mogherini, we have achieved this, and I believe it has worked remarkably smoothly. Not without difficulties, but we have delivered a number of very policy areas. Uh, I, I mentioned Iran, of course it's gone badly since we had a change of administration in the US, but the fact is under Kathy Ashton and then finalized under Federica Mogherini, the European Union played a very important role in brokering that deal. I think we can be relatively satisfied uh, on, on Russia and on Ukraine, on the way in which we managed to maintain a common European position, and indeed just recently at the G7 it was the US which appeared to be diverging from the common line which we had taken, rather than the days when people in Washington believed it was the Europeans were unreliable when it came to sanctions against Russia. I think in the Balkans we have also shown a great leadership bringing together the, the Commission responsibility of enlargement and the foreign policy responsibilities uh, of Federica Mogherini. I think the recent paper on 
China, which was a joint effort of the European External Action Service and the Commission, which integrated the, the economic and very important economic issues we have with China, also with the broader issue of, of systemic rivalry and the challenge which China offers uh, to a number of systemic issues, was a remarkable piece of work and one of the, the most interesting integrated pieces of work I've seen come out of uh, the institutions in some time. Uh, Anna has already mentioned, and I won't, I won't add just to, to, to reasserted what Federica has succeeded uh, on defense. Uh, uh, this is, we have succeeded more in the last two or three years on defense than we did in the previous 20 or 30. Again, you can find things to be doubtful about it, and I've attended a number of the, the research sessions and very good points made, uh, emphasizing that there are weaknesses uh, and still uh, uh, disagreements between our member states, but still, we have made more progress in this area. Where I think we have done less well, let us be frank, is, is the Middle East generally, the reaction to the Arab Spring, uh, uh, the, the, the crisis in Syria, of course, which is an utter catastrophe, the greatest humanitarian crisis probably of our, of our generation, and unfortunately Europe has been relatively absent. Uh, Libya similarly, frankly, we, we caused the problem and then weren't able to fix it. So I think that there are, there are, there are areas where we have been less successful. Uh, but I also think, and that's my, my final point uh, on, on this first session, uh, at the end of the day, we can create the machine. We can create the machinery, we can create a common external action service, we can create delegations which genuinely seek to be forces uh, bringing together and, and developing uh, a coherence of action amongst our member states on the ground in, in third countries. But of course, if we don't have a shared sense of destiny amongst our member states, you cannot invent uh, an ersatz foreign policy. Where there are genuine divergences, they, they will exist until we solve them on the substance. And there are, of course, uh, enormous centrifugal forces that we know. Uh, there's Brexit, there is the rise of populism, and there's the, the issues we know of, of member states not necessarily seeing eye to eye on some of the foreign policy issues. But there are also important centrifugal forces, centripetal forces, which are driving us in the same direction. I remember going back to the 70s when the biggest thing we could achieve was a common vote on a UN resolution. Now this is commonplace. 99% of the time our member states vote the same way and we don't just deliver the 28 votes of the member states, we bring with us uh, the candidate countries, associated countries such as Switzerland and Norway and Iceland. So we have, as a, as a block, the European Union and allies delivers a close on 35, 36, 37 votes in the United Nations on the most important issues. And this is a not insignificant step forward. So I'm relatively optimistic. I'm well aware of the challenges, believe me, having worked on the nuts and bolts, nobody knows the flaws of the machine better than I do. But I think you need to take a certain sense of historical perspective and step back from where we have come when the report of Viscount Davignon in 1970 speculating about a common foreign policy for the then European Economic Community and where we are today. This is, this is moving from the Stone Age to the nuclear age and it's a remarkable achievement. Uh, thank you very much. I think one of the reminders that I always remember when I started studying you from policy was Dave Allen again, who was mentioned already, who always said, you can't forget the member states. You from policy can't work without the member states. So I think a very good reminder for us. But also quite interesting that I got the sense by listening to the panels today that academics seem to be a bit more negative than policymakers. So academics probably focus more on the things that don't work, whereas it's also a good reminder to say, yeah, but sometimes maybe we should stop and also look at the things that actually worked up positively. And I'm now very curious to see if my assumption holds, and I pass the floor to Jost Henrik to hear what he makes of the reflections of our two practitioners. Thank you very much, Heidi, and thanks for inviting me also to, to you and uh, Norsha. Um, yeah, we've heard a lot of things. I don't think I can claim to be uh, responding to them uh, appropriately, but I have a couple of thoughts, of course, on the looking back these 10 years and mission accomplished of the EAS. Um, as an academic, of course, I can't believe in miracles, um, however, however minor they may be. Um, so what I would like to say about the, the, this kind of looking back at the EAS is that um, assessing the EAS is, is really a lot about the... Yeah, it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, depends a lot on who you talk to, what elements they, they highlight as positive or negative. And I think that's important for us academics to, to kind of untangle who is saying what, to understand 
um, yeah, is it is it an overall positive assessment or not? I mean, we're coming back to this question in the last part, in the last theme. Um, so I don't want to say too much about the historic, long historic perspective. Um, but member states and the Commission and the European Parliament or MEPs didn't have uniform objectives for the EAS and not for the HRVP either. Um, and I think that should be a starting point that we, we need to consider. There were a lot of different views on what this position and what this organization should do. Um, and based on what your position is here, that will depend a lot, right? It will have a lot of impact on, on how you assess it. Um, and I've just wanted to go through a little bit on what I've looked at um, in, in my book that Heidi has kindly already plugged, so I don't need to, need to do that myself. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so, for example, you have a lot of MEPs who are quite happy with the arrangement, because what, you, what they see is an EAS and a service that works for them too, and that's what they wanted, and that works very closely with the Commission. Um, and I think the MEPs that are still around, of course, some of them have retired, are quite happy about this arrangement. Um, just to recall uh, that warning that Emma Brock said in the convention that uh, they did not want a kingdom of the middle. And I think what well, the EAS at the moment isn't that kingdom of the middle. So the, I think you'll find a lot of happy people. Um, the Commission, um, from, from what I found in, in, in my research, didn't really want the EAS because, of course, the Commission was already there. But once it was there, it, it made the best of it in many ways. Of course, that means to an extent the best possibly for the Commission. But um, it, it did engage with it uh, positively, and there will be people who assess it like that. Um, so th those are um, the two big European actors here. Then uh, one thing that, that uh, I would echo too, and that was already mentioned, of course, in the plenary this morning, that ownership of the member states has not quite materialized in the way um, that was also maybe naively thought at the beginning, despite the positive things we've, we've heard today. Um, but at the same time, on a, on a kind of practical service level, and I think that echoes very well in, in your presentation, um, on a, it's working. National uh, diplomats are going to the EAS, and they are coming back. We have an example sitting right here um, on the plenary. That is, of course, one thing that was intended in the original, uh, in the original discussion. It was supposed to be a conveyor belt, but of course, after 10 years, that is the first generation where this can happen, and, and I think to expect a, a quick effect of that is, is, is not very likely. Um, the problems are much more at the political level, and if I look at the, the evidence I've gathered um, from member states, it is still a, a little bit a perspective of our man in Havana, if I can quote the, the, the novel by Grant Green, rather than the EAS is a service for all of us. Um, and, and there is a disconnect, and we've discussed this a little bit already today. So, um, I think the interesting question, this leads on, I hope, to theme two that, that uh, you will talk about next, is, is, is the EAS tied to the Commission, this closely for good? Um, is it a lock-in? Has the Greenies move to be more closely aligned, kind of um, tied future? I um, represented as Vice President as well. We'll, we'll see this happening in, in front of our eyes, and I think that's, that's very interesting. In um, fact, hopefully a discussion we can have. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Yes. Um, looking at the time, if our guests agree, I would change a bit the setup and first give the floor to Ben and then give the floor back uh, to Anna Zacharias and David O'Sullivan for, for, for the second question. But I think now it would fit very well now that Joost really also gave us the sense of how the institutional perspectives uh, will go uh, to hand over to Ben, who in the last two years was traveling around the world quite a lot, and had the opportunity to get a lot of insights of how others perceive of what's happening in Brussels, in the External Action Service and the High Representative. And Ben, I'm very much looking forward to hear your perceptions that you, that you collected during your research. Thank you very much, Heidi, and again, like everyone else, thank you for the invitation to this, uh, this, this roundtable. Um, I'm quickly going to, to reverse roles and give you, give you a, a, a couple of quick pr practitioner anecdotes uh, from an academic perspective. Uh, during the presidency of a, of a small member state, which shall remain nameless, um, I was asked to represent Europe um, at an Asia-Europe uh, track to dialogue, which is sort of NGOs, academics, etc., etc. So in all naivete, I, I approached the relevant foreign ministry 
and asked for the briefing papers and, and the policy statements that I should be representing as, as Europe's representative uh, at this meeting. Uh, and of course there was no Asia desk in this foreign ministry, there was a half-time Asia person uh, at this foreign ministry. Um, and I was told, no, there was only one rule, just one thing I had to do during this, during this, during this event. Um, I was going to be there and there was going to be a commission official who was going to be there who had been obviously working on this dossier for possibly years, if not decades. Uh, the one rule I was given was, never give her the microphone. <laughs> that was the entire extent of my instructions. So I stood there for the better part of a day and a half holding the microphone to the Commission and the colleagues who knew what she was talking about, whereas I, ostensibly from the Member State, was representing the European perspective. Second quick practitioner's dialogue, um, in respect of the Globus project, which, uh, which Heidi has very kindly mentioned, uh, we're looking at trade, we're looking at migration, we're looking at security, and we're looking at climate change. And I again approached the Foreign Ministry of a state which shall remain nameless uh, and said, you know, this might be of interest to, to, to them as a foreign ministry in terms of, you know, what, what they think should be happening, what, what, what should be going on in, in EU foreign policy. And I was immediately told, well, that's for the EAS, that's not for us. Now again, in terms of where we have come from and where we are, I think it speaks volumes and reinforces uh, both the State Secretary and, uh, and David's contribution. But I have two, two provocations. Um, sort of in, in terms of looking, looking forward. Um, the first is to ask, does the nature of the EU beast delimit what we can expect of it? Because there is a, there is a, there is a fear on my part, and, and David has, has used the word, and I've used the word previously, there is a danger of our attempting to create an ersatz foreign ministry, an ersatz foreign minister, an ersatz defense ministry, and an ersatz European army without having the political constellation and level of federalization at the EU level that those things would naturally require. So is there a limit or is there a particular shape that we have to think about mm -hmm. in terms of where the European Union can legitimately go bearing in mind its precise uniqueness? And its precise uniqueness gives it certain weaknesses but also gives it particular strengths. And the question then is to ask, well, how do we build on those strengths and minimize those weaknesses? The second provocation I'd offer is, is something that came out of the, the presentation of Federica Mogherini when she land, launched the, uh, the, the Global Strategy. Um, and she spoke very, very clearly and very powerfully, I thought, about the existential threat that Europe faced. An existential threat from within and an existential threat from without. And I think, to, 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 again to be slightly provocative, we haven't faced that existential threat from within. We have member states who threaten the rule of law. That is remarkable. Now we have mechanisms that we have put into place, we're not sure whether they'll succeed, but we do have member states that are threatening the rule of law. That is some one of the foundational norms of this union. We have former partners and current competitors in the international milieu who are challenging some of the basic tenets of the multilateral system. And the very difficult question I think the Union has to ask is how do we respond as a Union to those existential threats from within and from without? And one slight fear I do have, and again I'd love to hear from the, from the practitioners on this, one of the fears I do have is that the U European Union in some sense pulls back. It pulls back so that it is more realistic. It pulls back so that it is more, it, it faces the realities of the, the geopolitical moment that people talk about. It pulls back from its values and it pulls back from its norms in order to subsist in this new international and domestic environment. And I would ask whether that, that strategy of pulling back, whether you call that principled pragmatism or whether you call that resilience, I would ask whether that's the appropriate strategy in response. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ben, uh, for also, I think, already opening up our, our second round of reflections. Where on the one hand, I want to give the floor back to our practitioners um, to see what they think about Ben's questions, but also to add my own one in terms of there's a lot of talk about this, this new age of a different kind of world. And I thought in the last um, 10 minutes we could really reflect a bit more on do you think that the way the EU is set up now in foreign affairs, the EU is actually fit for purpose in the next 10 years? Or to formulate it differently in line with our title, what recommendations would you give 
to the next high representative to be able to manage at least some of the challenges. Sorry, I can't <laughs> So, thank you very much. So, thank you for the presentation. I, I, it immediately came to my mind a joke. Can I tell a joke? Yeah. The, the, the joke goes that there is a parrot in a plane traveling, and the parrot starts screaming to the hostess, um, uh, give me a whiskey, give me my blanket, give me food, give me water. Oh, you are a lazy woman. Um, and, and complaining all the time. The, the lady would bring in the whiskey and would bring the food and very patiently would bring everything. There was a man sitting next to the parrot. And he said, how come that you do all these things? You are so nasty and they bring things to you. And he said, oh, never mind, I just do it. Try it, try it. You can do it too. So the man starts screaming, I want a whiskey, I want a, a blanket, and you are so lazy and this and that. And there was a moment where all the rest of the passengers in the plane and with the captain, with the commander of the plane, just said, enough. They opened the door and they threw them both through the, the door. This can happen some jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so they threw them up and the man was, oh, help, help, help. And the parrot passed by and said, fly man, fly, why don't you fly? He said, I can't fly, I don't know how to fly. He said, oh, damn it. And why were you behaving so badly in the plane? <laughs> <laughs> so, sometimes this reminds me of uh, what Ben was saying. Can we be a bullier? Can we, are we prepared to, to play hardball in the world? Or we are experts in softball? Maybe that's what we are. And we, we're not equipped with the wings of the parrot. We, we are just men and women, you know, and we need to know exactly uh, what can we do better with what we have. Federica Mogherini today, in her speech to the uh, to the EU ambassadors, it's her last speech. She had a very interesting uh, sentence. She said, "The EU has to be the voice of rationality and common sense in the world." And this makes sense. We we are what we are. Um, we can change, yes, we can, but the union is what member states will make out of it. And, of course, the new HRBC uh, will take office in a very demanding international context. A uh, highly unstable geographic and neighborhood, a less clear relation with our trans transatlantic partners, a more assertive China, a defying Russia, challenges posed by migration, growing urgency on tackling uh, climate change, technological revolutions. So all this are here and we have to give it an answer. We defend a strong HRVP, able to speak up, to defend the EU interests and values in articulation with member states all the time. But he has to listen to all, as I said, and understand the positions of all, and avoid that the EU foreign policy becomes just the summing up of the external policies of the bigger member states. Because this is not the EU against member states, it's the EU with member states, and member states are the EU. It's a community. Sometimes what we see is also differences between member states. It's just, it's normal to have differences and we have to find ways in which to address this and go forward. Now, the tools. First tool that comes to my mind is the budget. We, what can we do? We can do a lot of things, but if we do have not the resources to do what we want, mm -mm. So, budget is very important. The Commission is now proposing an increase of 30% in the area of external action. This is fundamental. Uh, this will take us, uh, at least, it will be an element. Let's hope that this can go uh, forward. And in a more coordinated way, the instrument in itself, it's a more coordinated one and has elements also for migration, for climate change and everything. So, the world is changing, really, but we have to find something new, but we also need to go on with what we are building. It's not just reinvent the wheel. So, there are things that we already said. 
the advances in the area of European defence. Yes, we need to uh, go on with that. But we have to also to be very careful and listen to the citizens because many people think that the Union should not build the European army. The Union is not made for that. So we need to be careful and, uh, and, and see uh, how do we engage, how, put, how do we put this question, how do we engage better with NATO, how do we uh, assess and, 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 uh, and uh, give attention to hybrid threats, uh, how do we do um, conflict uh, uh, prevention and mediation, and how do we go about this idea of coordination in, in defense. Um, multilateralism, we spoke about it. Multilateralism is, is embedded in us, so it's, we need to continue. Even if the world is going less multilateral and more nationalistic, I think the Union needs to go on, uh, needs to, go on to deploy efforts uh, to, to promote this rule-based uh, international order, be it in human rights, be it in trade, be it in climate, be it in migration. Then we need to look around. Situation around us is not easy. David already spoke about the Middle East. Uh, Middle East goes into uh, our immediate neighborhood here, uh, particularly for us, Portugal. Uh, there are problems in Libya and, and we should have a better strategy for the whole Northern Africa. But we also need a strategy for the whole of Africa. And this is very important because it's not just uh, aid to development, that is an area where we could do things well. We could do a good uh, program for, for and with Africa, not just with the African Union, but also with the different member states, with the different African countries. We can talk about trade, use sustainable growth, we can talk uh, about uh, robust political dialogue, so this is fundamental, and, and Joseph Borrell has been talking a lot about this, so he knows this agenda well. We, we, we hope that um, we can have the culmination of this process of building this partnership uh, here in Lisbon in 2021 during our presidency um, in the first semester of 2021. And here I am, a member state, pushing something for our side. It's in the EU interest but it's our national interest too. And because in every single presidency of the Union, Portugal has talked about Africa. This is, our, this is also in our DNA. So it is important that, for instance, the German presidency said they're going to take care of the EU-China summit, will take care of the EU-Africa summit, and our Slovenian friends will take care of the EU-Balkan summit. If this works well, it serves us all well. So then we have to take um, a look at, uh, we've talked already about relations with China. China is, I think this new communication, I totally agree with David on this, this is a very good document, but it's going to be tough, and Russia is going to be tough, and, the, and, and our transatlantic partners are going to be tough, uh, and this will take us a lot of time and a lot of energy, China, Russia, uh, uh, US, and the other transatlantic partners, uh, Canada and Brazil, for instance. Um, then we have another thing, which is, the future of our relation with the UK. The UK will become soon a third country. We need to discuss that too. How we're going to engage and how we're going to work, work together. And uh, finally, I think, uh, taking into consideration what has been said, there has to be this huge synergies between what we do internally in the Union and and the implications that that have on the outside. What we decide to do in terms of economic terms, for instance, let's imagine that we start cutting, uh, that we, we, we start uh, consume less, that we go for a more recycling type of economy, circular economy, that we do not pollute as much, but means that that family that is producing the t-shirts in Thailand will be out of work because we want to be environmental 
responsible and responsible. So we have to see all the implications of that. It's what we do, even things that are good and well can have strong implications uh, at, at the international level. And this is true on climate, it is true on energy, it is true on technolo technology and digital development. And, um, and so we need to really see uh, what, what are the implications of our internal uh, policies. And, uh, and finally, another element that I think is very important is what is our what is our structure? What, 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 are, what, is, what is our identity, really? And our identity is based as the EU, member of an organization called the European Union, is a set of values. That's also what the treaty says. We are a group of member states that are, to, that are supposed to uh, preserve and respect a set of values. That's our core. So let's do that. Let's do that internally, because only doing that internally we are credible externally. And we need to do this respect for democracy, respect for the rule of law, respect for human rights, and respect for our European social model. We have a model. When I ask my son, who is living in the United States, how do they see you or us as Europeans, he always says, well, they see us as diverse and having uh, social security. <laughs> so let's have social security. Let's export the model of social security. I'm so glad that the Commission presented finally a, 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 a strategy for well-being. Who would think the Commission will ever present a strategy for well-being? Well, it has presented a strategy for well-being. And this is important for us and for the world. We are not Bhutan. We, we do not create the idea of happiness. But we can create in a very pragmatic way this idea of well-being. We can create and generate a society that is human-centric. And this is so important with the new technology that is coming. Artificial intelligence is going to change the world. If we do not start now working in, in, in this ethical way that it becomes you know, something that uh, it's uh, uh, humane or uh, it's, it's put mankind in the center of this, it, it can be very detrimental. So we need to use this that is part of us to make the world a better place. This is all love and peace, <laughs> but it's credible love and peace. It's, 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 it's a pragmatic love and peace. And, and I think there is a responsibility from our side uh, to do this. In a very interconnected world, we can do it. We can do it. We can play soft ball. So let's try behave in the airplane. And, uh, you know, and when the parrot starts screaming, just slap it and say, shut up. It's, you shouldn't do this. Or, uh, or treat him as he deserves, as a parrot. So I think we, we, we cannot be compared to the bullies of the world. We don't want to become a bully in the world. And we have the things that we need to, to, to fight for and that we need to stand for. So I think that this is it. Thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, what's been said, um, a couple of kind of, what do I think the next high representative needs to focus on? I mean, I, I have three thoughts, one of which um, Anna's not going to like. Um, the first is, I think one of the, one of the things that have not succeeded as, as well as I would have liked, uh, the China paper was slightly the exception, is we have not connected the dots between the different aspects of European policy in the way that I would have liked. So I'm talking about uh, obviously the obvious external relations family, so enlargement, uh, development, trade. Uh, there's still a tendency for these to go their own way. Uh, one of the research papers I saw this afternoon talked about that in, in delegations. Frankly, it worked very well in Washington, I have to say, but it's true there is a certain tendency for a compartmentalization. Um, I, I think uh, that was another one of the papers that I also heard today was talking about the relationship of the European Council. 
Uh, I think we have not yet kind of connected the dots between the High Representative and the President of the European Council on foreign policy in, in the way that we, we ideally should, because actually the treaty gives the foreign policy representation role to two actors, and not just the High Representative and Vice President, but also the President of the European Council, and that's something that uh, you know, has been slightly differently exercised between uh, President Van Rompuy and uh, between President Tusk, both of whom have done an excellent job, but <clears throat> I'm not sure that either of them have really focused on that, that aspect. Um, and so I think one of the things we need to do, and it's interesting that just sort of, and, and others have hinted at this, that member states think the EAS is too close to the Commission. Honestly, that's not the way it's perceived in the Commission, and it's not the way I lived it. Um, I think in the early days, we wanted to emphasize rather the distinction with the Commission, uh, because frankly, we had this nightmare scenario where people in the Commission felt they'd been expelled from the bosom of the Commission into the, 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 the darkness of, of intergovernmentalism, and the people in the Council Secretariat thought their worst nightmare had happened, and they'd woken up and found themselves working for the Commission. Uh, and, and so I had to calm them all down every day to say, listen, you know, actually, it's not quite like that. But the fact is, um, the European External Action Service, and, and I think this was mentioned also, Carolina mentioned this morning, it can't be an institution, for God's sake. It's not an institution, it's a vehicle. And the only other executive vehicle we have is the Commission. Uh, so it has to be close to the Commission if it is to function effectively, uh, and it is, when you look at the delegations, actually the day-to-day -day work of most of our delegation is actually the Commission the commission stuff, with a little bit of foreign policy thrown in here and there, depending on, on the location. Sometimes a lot more foreign policy, sometimes a lot more development aid or trade or whatever. So I, I really think we, we need a, a rethink on this relationship and a greater connecting of the dots, also because, as Anna has said, the Commission is going to have a massive agenda uh, to, to, on, on the economic side, on the cyber security, uh, on artificial intelligence, all of these issues which are going to have huge external dimension implications and we need to connect those dots better. The second point is, is, is really a kind of slightly anarchish, uh, anarchish point, but I think it is actually important. It is the Commission proposal to use the passerelle for qualified majority voting uh, on certain aspects of foreign policy, notably uh, human rights resolutions, sanctions, and particularly the establishment of uh, uh, military and civilian missions. Uh, I think this is right, not Anna because I don't want to involve the member states, but because actually unanimity is a curse also for the member states. Because when you have to give your agreement, then you have to explain to domestic constituencies why you agreed to it, and sometimes it's, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, the whole point about qualified majority voting is it creates a different dynamic. In practice, even in the single market, we have rarely voted down member states. But the fact that you, you, you don't have an automatic veto changes the dynamic of the discussion. And frankly, some of the human rights resolutions that have been blocked by one member state saying you can't issue a criticism of China or you can't issue... This is outrageous and, and it's, not, it's not in anyone's interest. I feel the same about sanctions, to be very frank. Uh, you cannot have a sanctioned policy that is, is predicated on, on unanimity. Uh, and I think the same for the creation of, of civilian and military missions, because anyway, member states will decide if they want to participate. Uh, so I think, I think that really needs to be looked at. It would be a, a small step forward, but I think it would change a bit some, some of the dynamic. Um, the really big question, I think, that will face us uh, is reinventing transatlantic relations, because from that, everything else is going to flow. Let's face it, the greatest crisis we face is, and I'm an unreconstructed transatlanticist, uh, I believe profoundly in the transatlantic alliance, but we have to accept America's change. And it's not just Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump may or may not win the election uh, next year. Uh, I honestly don't know. Today I would say he probably will win it, but a lot can happen between now and next year. He could lose it. But it doesn't matter. We should not be under the illusion that Mr. Trump losing the election will dramatically have a reset back to where we were five or ten years ago. America has changed. And Mr. Trump has changed America. And the incoming president, if it's not Mr. Trump, is still going to have to deal with that uh, new, new America. And we're going to have to deal with that new America. And it forces us, and that's to Ben's point, to ask ourselves questions that we thought we would never have to ask. How self-sustained how self are we on security? How, how, how much strategic autonomy do our member states actually want? Look at the issue of sanctions. On Iran, we have supported the continued existence of the JCPOA. The Americans have used second, secondary sanctions effectively to empty that agreement of any meaning. 
We are not able to deliver our side of the bargain to the Iranians in terms of the economic benefits of, of, of abandoning the nuclear program. Can we really accept this? That any time we try to have a separate foreign policy, all America has to do is slap sanctions and immediately, whether we like it or not, our companies are forced to comply. That's a huge question. But in my view, we have to ask ourselves these questions in the next period because they do go to the heart of what it means to be European and what it means to uh, aspire to be a force for good in the world and to have a, a, a policy which is closely aligned with our American allies, but which is not coterminous or identical with what any given president of the United States chooses to do on any given day. Now, this is a massive challenge, and I don't underestimate it, but I think it is what we have to do. And, and finally, um, on the, the broader question of, you know, is the EU fit for purpose? You know, I think it was H.G. Wells who said, uh, uh, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. I, I think uh, for Europe, uh, we have a race between integration and irrelevance. Uh, and I think that's going to become increasingly clear. Uh, and this is a choice member states are going to have to face. They're going to have to accept either we integrate more in certain key areas, or we become irrelevant, and others take the decisions around us, whether that is the United States, or China, or Russia, uh, uh, or, or even other actors. And I'm relatively optimistic that we will give the right answer. And then I look at Brexit and I think, well, actually, people don't always give the right answer, do they? So it could go wrong. Yes, it could. But I think what we cannot do, and I agree there with Ben, is we cannot say, because it might go wrong, we can't risk it. We can't actually challenge our people to understand the nature of the changing universe in which we live and how we protect our fundamental European values in that context. And that has to be through, in certain selected areas, greater integration, greater European cooperation. Yes, it means sacrificing a certain amount of national sovereignty. On the other hand, it's a sovereignty which, if we don't do this, will increasingly become irrelevant and incapable of being utilized at the national level. And that's the discourse we have to have with our citizens. And I think the next High Representative, the next President of the Commission, the next President of the Council have to be willing to take that uh, debate into the public domain in order to explain to people the very high stakes which we are playing with in, in, in the current global situation. I remain relatively confident that at the end of the day, we will persuade member states, and I absolutely agree with Anna. If we, we have to persuade member states, it's not about playing tricks, it's not about deceiving them or, or institutional chicanery. We have to bring people with us, but I believe we can do that, and I believe if we don't, that we're going to end up with, with a world which most of the people in this room, I think, would, would not wish to live in. Thank you. For more UACES podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast and don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.